When you think of places you like to go, do you have a place that you go to over and over again? A place that you like to go to at any time of day? A place where you know you're going to like the people and what's going on and the food? Chef Thomas Keller knows a thing or two about restaurants, and he says that he used to joke that he opened his less fancy Bouchon Bistro right down the street from his fancier restaurant, the French Laundry, so that he would have a place to go and eat when he was finished working on all that super fancy food. Chef Keller talks about all-day restaurants, in his case, modeled on a French concept, the bistro, and here's what he said. Why is it that we are drawn to bistro food throughout our lives? What qualities make it excellent rather than good? Why do we keep coming back to that bowl of mussels steamed with wine, garlic, and thyme, or to that lemon tart? In sum, why is bistro cooking one of the most important kinds of cooking? I have some thoughts on why bistros, why all-day restaurants, are so important. First and foremost, there's the great food, but there are also wonderful people and a welcoming atmosphere, places that feel like places you want to be, a place where the staff knows you, where they want you to be there, where they want to nourish you and your neighbors. For a long time, I've wondered about an all-day place in Vancouver, one with really good food and really great staff, but it should also have wonderful treats to take away, and it should be affordable, and it should nourish the community that supports it. I'm not asking for much here, am I? As you'll hear today, I have found that place. This one nods more to Italy than to France, and if you don't know it yet, I'm betting that you'll want to know it by the end of the show today, once you hear from the chef and co-owner behind it all. So, let's get started. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Demoni Podcast, and welcome to the very first full episode of Season 4. I'm really happy that you're here with me. And coming up, we've got a great talk with a fantastic chef who is also a fantastic person. You know when you meet someone for the first time and you just know they're great? That's how I felt sitting down to speak with Claire Lassam at Vancouver's Livia Bakery. That interview is coming right up. A few housekeeping matters first. How are you? How are we all? When I wrapped up season three late last summer, we were in the midst of this awful global pandemic. And here we are now, in the midst of this awful global pandemic. I hope you're well and safe and finding ways to connect and enjoy life while things remain just so strange. On that front, I've got two things that are letting me connect and making me happy these days that I'm going to share with you now. If nothing else, COVID has made people creative about the ways they connect with other people. It's so important. And here are two virtual ways I'm doing that now, and and maybe you'll enjoy them too. Refreshingly, perhaps for this show, these don't have anything to do with food. They're just two things that I think are fantastic. The first is one that I've mentioned before, and it's called the 2%. A few years ago, my wife, Baharnas, and I did a walking tour of art galleries in Chelsea in New York City. And that was with David Berenger, also known as the 2%. David's theory, 98% of art is boring. Welcome to the 2%. And even with all of the culinary wonder in New York, what stands out to me most from that trip is our gallery tour with David. These days, of course, gallery tours are not possible, so David has put together a virtual offering called the One Year Tour. Every couple of weeks, he sends out a great video of him visiting some really cool New York gallery exhibitions. I know nothing about art, but I love these videos, and I love the window that they give me into the New York art scene. The One Year Tour is a paid subscription service, but David has lots of great free content too, plus an addictive Instagram account. I'll put links to those things in today's show notes. The second virtual way to connect I want to share with you is a new one to me, and and a new one generally. I know lots of people who love reading, but my friend Lisa really loves reading, and she has started an Instagram account called Scout and Lyra. Now, many of you may already have named in your heads the books that those characters come from. I got one out of two, not bad. 
And this account is really fun. Lisa provides thoughts not just on what she's reading, which is great in and of itself, but also on bookstores, on grammar for all of my fellow grammar nerds, and she asks some great questions. Lisa's followers then respond with great comments of their own, and all in all, Scout and Lyra is just a great place to spend some time. You'll expand your brain, and you'll have fun doing it. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, we must get to today's interview with Claire Lassam. I met Claire through our mutual friend Tess, and Claire welcomed me into her restaurant Livia on Vancouver's Commercial Drive for the interview. Livia is the wonderful all-day restaurant space in Vancouver that I've been looking for. Claire and her husband Jordan started Livia together, and they have very clearly built a place that people want to be. For Claire, working in the restaurant business was always exciting. That's that's not to say that it was without its challenges. To the contrary, today you'll hear some thoughts from Claire on the restaurant business as a business. And when she started, it was mean, and Claire does not want to run her business like that. But she does look back at her early training as forcing people either to get good at their jobs or to get out of the industry. And, and we have this really interesting discussion about trying to find the balance between performing well and having a good work environment. But there is no doubt that Claire is willing to put in the hours, and no doubt that she has found her industry, and she knew that very early on. I clicked with it. I remember being so embarrassed on my first day. I mean, I wasn't on cooking or anything, like I was getting things from the fridge. But we were like in the throes of service, and everyone was running around, and I was just like, like stop smiling so much stop smiling so much you're so embarrassing because I just was like so jacked up on adrenaline and so excited I was like this is where I belong oh and on the food industry generally you'll hear a few kitchen terms today so just in case they are new to you a sheeter is something that is used for making croissants sheeters are sort of like giant crank pasta machines they thin out pastry dough very quickly which then allows pastry chefs to fold those sheets over and over on themselves, laminating them in a process that creates the many-layered dough that ultimately becomes a croissant or a Danish. And you'll hear about Danishes today, too. Claire also talks about a rack and roll uh, called a speed rack in the U.S. That's just an aluminum cart on wheels with many slots for putting sheet trays or pans onto. It's basically a convenient place for chefs to put their work. You'll hear the name Hobart, which may be familiar to you. That's a commercial brand of mixers and other baking equipment. You'll hear about a huge Hobart on today's show, and you'll hear about the color that Claire painted it. Claire also talks about their wine list being affordable but containing spec wines. So spec wines, if that term is new to you, those are wines that are not regularly brought in by the government store here in British Columbia. So private importers bring them in, and then these specialty or speculative wines. I'm not actually sure what spec uh, refers to, what the full word behind spec is, but they're often sold to restaurants and in private wine shops. So basically a spec wine is a, it's a harder to find wine, perhaps a more interesting wine. And I did promise some sourdough content as part of season four, and you are definitely going to get some today. Claire's got some great thoughts about the sourdough at Livia. I was amazed at just how much bread they are producing. But thinking about it, it's not really that surprising. It's wonderful bread, and it's bread that Claire calls accessible, meaning that it's delicious and with a great chew, but without a crust so thick that you might cut yourself while trying to eat it. And for Claire, accessibility goes beyond just the taste of the product. Nourishing her community is very important to this chef, so her food needs to be financially accessible as well. One of the things I struggle with a lot is wanting to make really beautiful food, but also wanting it to be approachable to our community. Yes. Uh, And I do think that good bread should be at an accessible price point for everyone. So, like, we lose money on our baguettes. We sell them for three bucks. But I believe very strongly that everyone, basically everyone can pull together three bucks and buy a a baguette. A good piece of bread. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. So we have that. All right, there is so much more great stuff, but I want you to hear it directly from Claire. So join me on Vancouver's Commercial Drive. Here's my talk with Claire Lassam. Thanks for being on Cheftimony. Oh, I'm just delighted to be here. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, I first heard of you, first heard of your business, your restaurant, through our mutual friend Tess. Mm-hmm. 
And that was because I had seen pictures of her wedding cake. And having ah. seen those pictures, I knew we had to talk. <laughs> so are you still doing wedding cakes or was that a one-off for a friend? I do them on occasion for friends. I did one last weekend, which is great. A couple, But I really i am trying to tone it down. Okay. It's a lot of work to do wedding cakes. And I do a lot of other things now. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and we are going to come to that because I think... A lot of people don't understand, appreciate just what goes into running your own space, mm-hmm. right? And it's a lot. So we will come to that because I do want to get your thoughts on it. But let's start where we are seated right mm-hmm. now in yeah. Olivia. Now, do you call it do you call it Olivia Bakery? Do you call it Olivia Sweets? Do you call it both? It it is it's too many things. <laughs> okay. It, we, we called it sweets when we was out of the farmers markets, and it was a much smaller thing but as it's grown the sweets feels less relevant as i hire more savory cooks the sweets <laughs> seems a little less relevant yeah, so now exactly. your bakery your sweets your savory your wine yeah. pasta your happy hour your patios it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot okay well let's i'll try to bring some focus so let's just talk about the room and what i would love to hear your comments on are the is the vibe the feel in this yeah. room because so, it's it's it feels cozy in a way that I haven't felt a room feel cozy for a long time. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I tried really hard at it. It's uh, it, What we do is funny. I feel like all of my male chef friends, were when I was explaining to them before them, were just like, I don't get it. It's too many things. And I was like, but like every other city in the world has spaces like this that are... You know, now it's in New York or LA, they call it the all day cafe, but in Europe, it's just a cafe and it's, you know, it's a bakery and it's a, it's food, but it's in a space that's really warm and inviting. And whenever I travel, I love going to spaces that you can grab a coffee in the morning, you can grab a sandwich in the afternoon, you can have a glass of wine, but mostly they just, they make you feel like you're at home, even if it's in a totally different place. And even if you're, they're selling food, that's not familiar. It doesn't feel like at home is in like a chain restaurant that, you know, you know what you're going to get, but I wanted a place that felt warm and commercial drive, the neighborhood that it's located in to me feels like that. I grew up in Toronto and it, it feels the closest that I could come to, to, to Toronto, to Kensington market, which is where my mom lives. But I really do feel like Vancouver has this obsession with like Norwegian minimalism. And I don't know that a lot of places nail it. And I do feel like a lot of spaces feel cold. And I think Vancouver, the general feels cold it's not a warm city. I think it's because it's the rain and people put their head down. I think it's because we have huge problems with mental health and homelessness and people are always asking for people. So people keep their heads down to try to avoid eye contact, which I mean, that's another horrible thing, but I do think it's, it's a cold city and I just, I'm not interested in cold. I want warmth and I think our space feels warm and I really love that about it. As do your customers, I'm guessing, right? Because you have lineups out, and you really do seem to connect. I've only dined here once, but I thought the service was the food was outstanding. The service was outstanding, Aww. really. And I don't want to say those almost like I was delighted with it, but I've also had outstanding food and outstanding service in other places in Vancouver. Of but what really stands out to me is the connection between the staff and guests and then everybody sitting around my wife and I sat at the bar right over there and chatted with each other and with staff and then I looked around and there were groups of friends of every age and there were groups of family with little kids ripping around and it just everybody felt welcome I like that makes you want to cry a little bit (laughs) so nice it uh commercial drive is a really special neighborhood when we were looking for spaces to open up so I lived on the drive for over 10 years now and my husband lived here for many years before that and what I love about commercial drive is there's I think it's the only neighborhood in Vancouver that really has a sense of community people here look after each other I've had two sketchy experiences in a decade of living here and both times there were like dozens of people immediately around to help me like it's a it's a neighborhood that really cares about each other and I think that's mostly why people live here and and it's a neighborhood in that there, we have like a really strong commercial drive is a high street. We've got good green grocers. We've got a good butcher. We've, we've got a couple good butchers. We've got, you know, a good fishmonger where like people live and, and actually interact with each other in this neighborhood. And 
all I wanted. We looked at spaces in other neighborhoods, but every time I was like, I just, I don't know that we can be successful in the West End, but I know we can do it here because I know the people here and people here care so much. People like on the drive, they just care so much. And I do think that we also wanted, I mean, as someone in this community, like we really wanted someone, a place that was, had great food, but wasn't pretentious and allowed people to just to connect. I think that's what great food does is it connects you. And there's, I mean, a million little hole in the wall, great places that I love to go to where I'm not going to seek community, but actually that's a lie. That's not even true. Cause all of those places, I know the owners that I want to hang out and talk to them. I like the connection. I think food connects people. I think that's so special. And that's, but that's the crux of everything we do here is connection. I don't, I, it blows my mind when people own food restaurants where that isn't the crux. I can't wrap my head around it at all. Right. Well, that's really refreshing to hear because so much of the noise around food and particularly reviews and the online stuff mm. is all, it seems to be all ill, I shouldn't say all, largely in my experience, ill-considered commentary <laughs> on technical execution of food. Yeah. And, and sure, sometimes something goes wrong in the kitchen at a restaurant and, and you know, it happens, whatever. But it seems to me that, yeah, what actually matters, those, again, those things are really important. Service is important. Great food is of important. Course. But, and I've said this with chefs over and over again on the show, what it brings us much more than that is community, connection, people. Right? Well, think about the great meals you've had in your life. Or when I think about the great meals I've had in my life, at least, like I look back and it's hard for me to remember what I was eating. What I remember is how I felt when I ate. Yes, them. and I know I think all the time. There's a, a restaurant in New York called Kings that's owned by three women, and I think that I think it's a, like a very feminine concept. And the more I talk to men about this, the more I think, well, oh, maybe this is like maybe like a more stereotypically feminine thing. But there's this, they had a grave review in the Times, and in it, the chef is saying, as quoted as saying something to the effect of, "I hate it when good food gets in the way of a great meal." And I like I just could, I was like yes that's yeah, it yes. that's it I don't like I want to eat beautiful food and I want great service and I want amazing wine and I want great coffee and I want perfectly executed croissants but mostly I want a place that makes me feel, feel good great and that's part of it like a perfectly executed croissant is part of feeling great if it's not perfectly executed you feel less great so all of that takes away and all of it's important. But similarly important are like the little design details that are just taken care of so you don't have to worry about it. And, you know, like I, the way the knives feel in your hands, the way that the weight of the cups in your hands, like every little thing makes you feel a little bit better. And a great dining experience makes you feel calm. It makes you feel like everything is taken care of and you just get to be your best, most relaxed self. And that could be at a really fine dining restaurant or it can be getting a Danish in the morning. But all of that is part of just feeling really good. And I don't know, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing in hospitality? Just making people feel good. Feel good, yes. <laughs> is that the whole point? Isn't that the point? Yes, I think it is. I, think I agree. It is. <laughs> well, and, and I've got lots more questions about Livia, but before we get to them, let's back up a little. And, sure. and please tell us about, about your background I know you went to Northwest yeah. Culinary Academy. Maybe you could just walk us through your early years in training. Maybe start even earlier. As a kid, when did you first know that cooking was going to be a, a part of your life? I mean, we, I, my mom, I've always been cooking. My mom is a great cook. My mom's mom was a great cook in a very specific way. She grew up without a lot of money and worked her way through school. She was extraordinary to get through university. She took, she would work as a live in cook and nanny for a year and then go to university for a year. It took her eight years to graduate and alternate. Wow. The mm. most badass. <laughs> um, but she learned how to cook in this very specific way of like, like asparagus was always served with hollandaise. Green beans were always sli sliced on a bias in cream sauce, French style. Like there was a specific way that things were done. Um, and my mom had this revelation when she went to university and ate a steamed green bean. It was like, what? what? You it's can not cut out a bias or a cream sauce French style? This is a thing that could happen? And then she met her best friend, who's, they're both named Sylvia, and she was a very, she's Roman to her core. Like, just, just the most 
by a landslide the most glamorous woman in my childhood. She wore these beautiful black clothes. It was, you know, like 90 pounds soaking wet, four foot 11, this perfect salt and pepper bob. Smoked more than anyone I've ever met to this date. She's a brilliant scientist. And she taught my mom how to cook Roman food. So, like, everything had five ingredients or less, dead simple, and just... But you buy good ingredients, and you just let them shine. That was how... That was the food I grew up on. And I was sort of like a semi-troubled youth from that trouble, but I was I was a troubled adjacent, let's say. <laughs> troubled curious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so my mom sent me as a strong word. I went to a, uh, a boarding school run by Outward Bound for a semester. And so we would have, the cook was there on weekdays and she'd leave on weekends. And for some reason I wanted to, and they allowed me to. And so I started making dinner for everyone on Sunday nights when the cook was out of town. So sometimes there would be like 30 of us and sometimes there would be 150 of us. And there were absolute disasters, but I left this experience of cooking for people and you know, and everyone in the class would come and help out and we'd all be cooking in the kitchen together. And I just, I left feeling like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be cooking. And then I was really lucky because one of my, we had a family friend who owned a restaurant uh, and he helped me get a job at a different restaurant, but uh, a restaurant that was sort of very, very classic, very old school, definitely targeted an older clientele, but did things properly and were really fastidious about things and really instilled in me really I clicked with it I remember being so embarrassed on my first day I mean I wasn't on cooking or anything like I was getting things from the fridge but we were like in the throes of service and everyone was running around and I was just like like stop smiling so much stop smiling so much you're so embarrassing because I just was like so jacked up on adrenaline and so excited I was like this is where I belong I felt it's like just like the first I remember it so distinctly so yeah I've just been like I've been I was hooked immediately from day one first service hooked on it and how old were you at this I was 17 at that 17 point. okay yeah. yeah I've never done anything else but like I started planning my first bakery when I was like eight with my sister <laughs> I love like, it I'm just I really commit to things yes clearly and, and carry them through <laughs> yeah, like, I picked my career at age eight I started at age 17 I picked my husband at age 19 I was like yep yeah, you're we're gonna get married <laughs> you know sure enough 14 years later like I just so anyways, we, uh, and then I, all my friends went to off to university. I threw my back out really badly so I couldn't work as much. Uh, so I decided to go to cooking school uh, and I came out here just cause I wanted a, a change of pace and then, and then met the man I know I'm married to. So, okay. Then I didn't leave. Really <laughs> here you me in. And here you are yeah. still. Yeah. Um, but I, I worked at a few restaurants around town and then I, but it's, I went to culinary school, but it's much easier to get jobs in cooking than it is in pastry. There's a lot more cooks than there are pastry positions. Usually in a restaurant, you've got 10 cooks and maybe one pastry person. Usually Garmanger does it anyways. And there are a lot more bakeries in Vancouver now than there were. So I went to culinary, which is great. I'm really glad I had the experience of cooking. But also, I very quickly started trying to veer onto the pastry side. So I did that for a few years. And then I got really burnt out and I took about a year off, which is how I met our mutual friend Tess. And then I started working at a sadly now gone restaurant called Little Nest, which is just around the corner from here. And Mary, the owner, was is extraordinary. And she I mean she was very hard to work for. She was not always easy, but she it was a she worked at Lumiere. She was a pastry assistant there for several years, left to have kids. And when she had kids, realized there was no place to have a there were no restaurants that she was welcome in with children that had served good food and so she made this she called it not child friendly but parent friendly cafe and it was magical there was she everything was so well done it was so thoughtful it was really simple and working for her like completely changed my perspective on what a casual place could be how great a casual place could be what it meant to instill community and from then, I, I left. I went and worked at a store for a little bit. I worked at a couple of chocolatiers for a little bit. I went and was a pastry chef for a couple of years and then uh, started working at the farmer's markets, started my own company and started selling at the farmer's markets and doing wholesale uh, sort of the lead up into this. Okay. And what were you making and selling at the farmer's markets? I started selling pastries. I didn't have any equipment. So it was not like I wasn't doing croissants or anything then because I didn't have a sheeter. Uh, there are people who do them. 
without a sheeter. By, and those people... Deserve medals? Oh, my God. It is... When I worked at the resort for a summer, I would make them every day. And my I have bad wrists, so I would roll on my forearms. And my forearms were black with bruises. It yeah, is... So hard. So hard. It's so hard. So I didn't do that. So I would sell, uh, like, brioche twists and breakfast pastries. And then... They asked me if I would make bread, uh, which I'm sure anyone who's listening to this who is a bread maker who's trying to get to the farmer's market is cursing my name right now because it is now very competitive to get in for breads. <laughs> but I had this weird moment where it wasn't, and they asked me to, so I did. And that honestly really changed the whole trajectory of my career because I, I had made breads before. I would liked making breads before, but doing it on that scale and doing that quick turnaround on it, I, I love it. <laughs> I love it more than I could have known I could have loved it. It wow. really, well, yeah, yeah. It, like such a, you know, all those little things that just fall into place that make make those that, huge life changes. But y- it did. It did. And is this sourdough bread that you were doing at yes. the time? Okay. Yeah. okay. So, I mean, it was horrible because I was working out of a commissary kitchen. Right. Without proper ovens, without proper mixers. Every farmer's market was a 30-hour shift. So, like, they were, you know, they were long days and they were super grueling. But it also... I don't know. You don't do that unless you really, like, really love it and are really obsessive about it. And that... I am a passionate and obsessive person, so it makes sense to me. You found your space. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I really, like, bread felt like a really good place for me in a way that I don't... I would not have suspected. I like finicky little things, and I thought that I would sort of veer more into pastry. And I had veered more into pastry, but it... uh, but bread is fun because it's all about the feeling of the dough and that, and, you know, feeling of the, you can do it, obviously, like commercial bakeries, that, that doesn't exist, but small scale bakeries, it does. And I do think there is a real, that much more, it's much more like cooking to me than baking, right? Like right. You're, it's, it's, it's more feel and yeah. more adjust on the go. Exactly. And, and more yeah. intuitive and more, okay, well, you yeah. got to give it an extra fold today. Okay. It's a bit cold here. So we'll do this. And again, like there's formulas you can do for that, but in a small space, you're doing it by skill and that is a real joy to do. Uh, and it, it does feel more like cooking, and I really love that. <laughs> love it. Yeah. I think I know your starter has a name. Gaia. Gaia? Okay, yeah. so tell us about <laughs> Gaia, and did Gaia come into existence around this time? Well, Gaia's predecessor did. Okay. Not named. Um, but I moved commissary kitchens and killed my starter with a new dishwasher. Oh, no. So uh, it was like, and it was very stressful. I think I had to be, I was making bread like the next day. So I needed a lot of starter, right? I had like, you know, 20 kilos of starter. And my, my, my starter was just not rising. But the bread community is really nice. Yes. Everyone is <laughs> lovely and cares about each other and like helps each other out and does what they can. So if you um, need a little starter. <laughs> so I called my pals up at Lake House Breads, which is sadly now closed, uh, and they let me some starter. So my starter is was their starter originally and then has morphed into morphed into Gaia. And morphed into Gaia. Yeah. Who lives on today. She does. She yes. does. They have sadly they made beautiful bread. I'm very sad yeah. that they were closed. But yeah. their starter has a still lives. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> tell us a little bit. I was going to come to this later, but let's do it now. Tell tell us about the sourdough. I don't know what we would call it program here. I love when I have walked by, seeing the loaves stacked up. Yeah. I've seen the lines. I've seen now uh, you're distributing through Legends Hall, yeah. which is a, a local company that uh, supplies restaurants and now retail. Mm. So tell us all about your sourdough. So <laughs> it's... It's a high hydration sourdough. The bread I grew up on, and we make we make the Italian white loaf here, which is sort of, that's like the most reminiscent of the bread that I had as a kid. Bread growing up was mostly white, had a really thin crust, had a pretty open crumb, and was basically stale five minutes after you cut into it. So ours, <laughs> or the version of that that we do is a much higher hydration. So it, it stays fresh for a lot longer. But, but bread was meant to be toasted. I always loved like a fairly thick crust, but I really resent bread that cuts your mouth when you eat it. That's like a really trendy thing now. People really like that, like really thick crust. You, you got to work for and it. It's not pleasurable to eat. I don't trust people that says it is. It's not nice to be like, to literally be bleeding as you're eating it because it's cutting your gums. That's not nice. So it, we're not trendy in that way, which I'm very comfortable with. But we, I, I genuinely think our bread is... I feel like the word accessible means something negative among cooks, but it's an accessible sourdough. And I, I love that about it. It's 
open crumb. It's got a beautiful crust and a beautiful chew to it, but it's not going to cut you when you eat it. And it's so our sort of country white sourdough is mostly white with a little bit of whole wheat for a little bit of oomph. We get some of our whole wheat flour from Anita's, which is a local miller, but we get most of it from Cedar Isle Farms. So I'd get as much flour as I can from them, but they cannot meet the demand. Yeah. Yeah. So then we get some from Anita's. Um, And I don't use, uh, we use unbleached white flour uh, rather than organic flour to try to keep the price at a reasonable point. Uh, One of the things I struggle with a lot is wanting to make really beautiful food, but also wanting it to be approachable to our community. Yes. Uh, And I do think that good bread should be at an accessible price point for everyone. So like we lose money on our baguettes. We sell them for three bucks, but I believe very strongly that everyone, basically everyone can pull together three bucks and buy a a baguette. A good piece of bread. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. So we have that. Um, And then we have our uh, Italian, or sorry, we have the Italian white, which is that sort of higher hydration than the one I grew up with, but a similar vibe. Okay. What Um, what sort of percentage are we talking for hydration? Between 65 and 75 for all the loaves. Yeah. And then we've got the whole wheat sesame, and then we have a a loaf that changes every day. So it's usually our white loaf that with a flavoring thing to it. So like today is Tuesday, so it's potato rosemary. Tomorrow is... Wednesday, so it'll actually be the whole wheat base, and it'll be uh, we'll add a bunch of seeds into that, or we did today, so it will get baked tonight and served tomorrow. So yeah, so it's that one changes all the time, and then we do a lot of laminated doughs, a lot of danishes, which are not classically Italian, and we are an <laughs> Italian bakery, and I get it. Right. But the first big pastries I ever fell in love with were danishes, and I don't think people do them here, and I, it doesn't make any sense to me why people like like. It's a croissant with a filling. It's with a filling perfect. in it. It's, yeah. It's, it's like so a, delicious. It's so delicious. Why doesn't everyone do them? Yeah. So we make those too. Lots of them. <laughs> what what volume of sourdough are you putting out in an average day? It depends on the day oh. and it yeah. depends on our wholesale. We're sort of hitting our capacity for wholesale now, which is like a lovely position to be in, but also stressful to turn people down because we're a really small business and I want to say yes to everyone. To everyone, sure. <laughs> but we sell between... Two and four hundred loaves a day between both avenues. Okay, so mm. it's a good chunk of bread. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, it is. <laughs> we um we sell or we have three decks on our oven, and our walk-in fridge is pretty small. It only fits four rack and rolls in it. So or speed racks, if someone from the states is listening. <laughs> yes. Um. So we have like there's a capacity that we hit. We can't go above make it. more. Right. We also only have one bench to make bread on. When we were, before we were opening, every cook friend came in and was like, oh my God, your kitchen is huge. And every baker friend came in and was like, how are you going to do this? This is so small. It feels small. It feels very small. Well, I'm going to have to ask for a picture of the Hobart that I saw from the side as we were walking. Like, what is the volume on? It's a thing of beauty. It it is. And it's much, it's not a bread mixer. It's, Uh, it most, like a commercial one at least has like 220 Quartz, uh, and ours is 140 or 160. So it's not like it's massive for a Hobart. <laughs> Hobart made those almost exclusively for Costco. You can't uh-huh. buy them in Canada, or you can, but they're incredibly expensive uh, because they they don't make them generally in Canada. So uh, ours is it's as old as I am. It was born in 1987. Okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I we picked it up. We rented a, a huge truck. A, like a comically sized truck because it had to have the lift of the back to get it in and To get out. it, sure. And we drove down to Washington State and they, we found it. There was a, a guy who mostly sold Hobart's but other bakery equipment uh, in Tacoma. So we drove down, grabbed it from there and brought it back. And he gave me a couple hundred bucks off on it because it wasn't painted because he was going to spray paint it and fix up the coloring on it. But I was like, I'm not spending the time painting this and not have it be pink. So ours is pink. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> me too. Love it. Coming back to the notion of Livia being a space that speaks to people throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So breakfast, have your coffee and Danish for breakfast, and then uh, lunch, have a little happy hour. Mm-hmm. Can you pick some items, one or two, whatever um, speaks to you off the from the savory menu and describe maybe describe a light dinner here. What would people have yeah. when they come in and sit at the bar? So the, we're opening for dinner this upcoming weekend... Uh, which is very exciting. Yes. Uh, it's the first time our poor chef so sick of making breakfast sandwiches. <laughs> so excited to make pasta again. He is a saint and I love him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're 
breakfast during the day, but breakfast is sort of more substantial. So you can get like a spaghetti carbonara. You can get polenta with poached eggs and local mushrooms. That's what I had. Yeah. And it was fantastic. That's, <laughs> that's like one of that will never leave the menu because that's like a classic dish I grew up on. And when I was super broke and had like just no money and yeah, when I was like a cook when I was 20, 21, um, I used to just get like parm rinds because I couldn't afford parm. And I would boil them in water with polenta, and I would make tomato sauce, and I would just be comforted. Yes. And it would, you know, it would be like 75 cents for dinner. For dinner. But it was just, it just made me feel good. Oh, so good. So I, like, I grew up on polenta, so we'll always have polenta on the menu. I love that one. And then it, as it turns into lunch, our lasagna, it gets a fair bit of hype because we sell it through Legends Hall as well now. But it is on, it's the best lasagna I have ever had by a tenfold. Wow. It's... Like, I grew up on lasagna. I love lasagna. My mom makes great lasagna. But... <laughs> but this is lasagna. lasagna <laughs> is, it's, it's outrageous. So in, in Emilia Romagna, you, uh, you layer the lasagna much higher. It's much more layers. You, so you really taste the flavor of the pasta. So obviously, we make the pasta in-house. Uh, we use really good eggs for it. Uh, our bechamel is very classic. But our bolognese is... It's really something special. And it's not like, like a layer of... Uh, bechamel, layer pasta, layer of bolognese, layer pasta. It's they're sort of splattered between the layers, so you get both in every little bite. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of layers to it, and it really, it's really special. It like it's it's a really special thing to eat. <laughs> I really really love it. I'm lactose intolerant, and I eat it way too often. You it's still so have disgusting it. I, love I regret it. nothing. It's the best. <laughs> See, this is one of these moments that I wish this podcast had a video component so everybody could see your face as you're describing the lasagna. (laughs) It's rapturous. Love it. And now is probably a good time as any to talk about, and I don't want to dwell on this because it's a depressing topic for the restaurant industry. Yeah, throw it at me. But but I think I think you and Livia have done goodness knows it's been a struggle but what i want to talk about is the pandemic but it seems to me coming back to the community side of things that not only have you continued to nourish your community through it but they have been supportive oh, of man. you so please it, tell us yeah. i will start crying when i talk about this yeah. it honestly it like it really blows my mind i i so we like everyone in the industry were like we're talking and panicking we closed right before we were mandated to just because we couldn't sort of guarantee that we would could keep our staff safe if we let people in our doors so we were incredibly lucky we had a two takeout windows in our space already so we you know our contractor came by took out we've got a huge bread wall in front of our main window and we took out one of the shelves and so you can access this little takeout window behind it now which is i mean if i had planned this i would have put it there anyways because it's like right in the middle of the bread wall and the bread is really the heart of what we do but we had one there and then we had a second one that's now the pickup window and so we we did that first and so uh we but jordan is incredible and he pivoted us so quickly he like really took the reins on it but yeah i mean i think like again like the the everything of behind what we do is community and and we build community we care about our community we give so much food away to the homeless people in our neighborhood all of our leftovers there's this Yelp review it makes me so mad. Someone's like, "Oh, like they throw out all their bread at the end of the day, like they don't sell day olds." And I was like, "No, we oh, don't eat our bread at the end of the yeah. day. I don't sell day olds because there's people in our community who need it, and we give it to them." Like, <laughs> so go Yelp. Yeah. Oh God, I yeah. shouldn't have gone down that road. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, like we really, we really care about our community, and I, I think that anyone who walks in here understands that. I do think our staff. Our staff is so amazing, and our front of house staff is so vested in our community. And with that came people who really wanted us to survive, which, like, is the sweetest, most humbling. It's like a funny. It's so humbling and also so like ego stroking at the same time to be like, people care about us and they yeah. want us to make it through this. But people cared and they want us to make it through it, and it really. Like, I cried every day for the first month of COVID because people would just say the nicest things we got handwritten letters from so many people i mean like as a person i want to own a business that cares about people because i care about people and this business is an extension of me but when people talk about owning restaurants and businesses for money like i'm just so flabbergasted because you need people to care about you it's really really hard to make a living in this and you need the buy-in of 
of your community. And and we have that, and it, it blows my mind and brings me to tears on the daily. It, it, genuinely, it really, it's, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Wonderful. Okay, I have another area that might might make you cry too, but please, but I us. cry a lot. It's fine. Don't worry. Tell us, tell us about your staff, and tell us because this is an industry even pre-COVID. As as I know from my limited experience in the industry, as you would know much better, it's a tough industry. It's a tough industry as a business owner. It's a tough industry as an employee. It is. It is, and it is hard. It is, and I, I say this with so much a genuine love for the people who work for me. But managing people is the worst part of my job. <laughs> and I don't excel at it at all. It is such a struggle and a constant learning experience because I really... So I think about this all the time. I thought about this all the time before we open anything, but all the time now. When I worked in restaurants, when I started in restaurants, it was mean. People were mean. And with this meanness came this really strong sense of camaraderie with everyone else that you were just in the juice with. Right. You'd been in the trenches. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it also came with like, if you're not good enough, you don't stay here because you'll either get fired or you'll quit because you'll be sad and, or you're just bad at your job. And it forced you to be good, right? Like being in the kitchen, working for people who have really high standards and will yell at you a lot. If you don't meet them. Yeah, <laughs> makes you good or makes you get out. Yeah. And I don't want to run a business like that. I think that a ton of people, and I think especially women, leave the industry because it is hostile and doesn't give you space to grow. Or it sometimes doesn't give you space to grow. It can, but it doesn't always. It really it cares to a very specific person, which is the sort of like sadistic white dude in their early 20s. And... I don't want a business that only <laughs> employs those people. No, there's the whole <laughs> world out there. We should be employing yeah. all of them. Yeah. But I also don't know how to get the best out. Like I also, I, I look back on my time doing that and I think it brought out the best in me as an employee. Even if it also made me like incredibly upset sometimes and made me quit the industry for a couple of years when I was in my early twenties. And like, I really, I've never really felt like rest. I've, restaurant person I've always felt sort of restaurant adjacent because I left on a couple of occasions because it really was not a warm environment and I think constantly like, how do I get the most of my staff while also not being an asshole am I allowed to say that on this absolutely okay, you are. and I don't know I don't know how to do that Jordan is great at people managing he is he really is and he has tons more experience at it than I do I mean, in an ideal world, you hire people who care so much that when they make a mistake, you don't have to yell at them. They feel terrible enough already. And I don't have to guilt them or yell. They just understand they the just gravity. They just get it. Yeah. 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 But it's really hard to find people like that. Yeah. And when you do, you do everything you can, can to make keep them. Yeah, right. exactly. Sure. And, you know, I try. I really want for this space to be a warm, inviting space for our staff. But I also expect a ton from my staff. We are just a cafe, but we do, we have so many moving parts in this business. Like the bakery, we have three services a day. We do wholesale. We do a fair bit of wholesale out of the space. We make tons of preserves. Like there's so many things happening and I require people to be really good professionals. And that's a lot to ask of people in day service. And I think especially front of house, it's like, of course, if you work at, Savio, your tips are going to be better, but I want Savio level service here. Here, yeah. And that yeah. is a really, it's a hard thing to get. But I, to the flip of that is that people don't want to be yelled at all the time. And I think that we can give people a nicer working environment. Yeah. And we do things that people are really proud of. And that makes it better. People serve food here. And even if it's just for brunch, it's really beautiful, thoughtful, careful food. And people are proud to serve it. And our wine list is really affordable. We've tried really hard to not have expensive wines on our list because that's not our vibe. But they're beautiful, thoughtful spec wines that a ton of care and thought goes into. And so the hope is to be able to keep and maintain staff that care a ton because they're proud to serve what they do, 
while also being able to have like a bit more balance and than a lot of higher end restaurants can offer them, right? right? Mostly they work during the days. We're pretty flexible on time off. So, you know, we try to do that. But it's hard. It's really hard. The hardest thing for me, like I, this business really does feel like an extension of myself. Like all my friends are having babies right now and I had this business and I, it, it feels similar to me. There's so much of my heart is in this space. And it's really hard to find and give the freedom to people to do their best work here and not have it be me as the face of it all the time. But I do think, especially our front of house has done, everyone who works our front of house is like just joy personified. And that we're so lucky to have found the people who care enough, who are skilled servers and also have that sort of joyfulness and pride. We really, we really lucked out with them. That was a really long answer. Sorry. That's a great answer. It's a great <laughs> answer. I love it. Do you think, Claire, that the, that the industry is changing for the better, even in small incremental steps? And I'll give some background to that question because I've always known, having worked in kitchens and having worked in law offices, and I started as a lawyer uh, over 20 years ago. Yeah, just over 20 years ago. And it seemed, my recollection at least, is that it was much more in the trenches then and you put in a ton of hours because the senior people had put in a ton of hours and yeah. now they were in a position to make you put in a ton of hours. But don't worry, you'll get to make somebody else put in a ton of hours. And it's it seemed yeah. <laughs> and and it seemed to me that, that the restaurant world was much the same. And it was like this yeah. badge of honor that, oh, I worked six eighteen hour days in a row. And is it that is. is is that changing? <laughs> it it is and it isn't, and it's and again, like I I want it to change. I think, and like, again, especially as a woman in this industry, it was not hospitable to me. I have been, I've had tons of sexual harassment in the workplace. I have had, I like, I remember distinctly at like age 20 being like, well, how am I going to get out of restaurants? Because I'm not going to be able to have kids and do this. And like, it was 20. I didn't, most people aren't thinking about that for many more years after that. But it's not an industry that, encourages any kind of life balance for you to have any other kind of life. And there's a reason there's very few cooks over the age of 35, right? There just, there aren't. You hit 40 and either you're an executive chef or you're switching careers, generally speaking, because it doesn't allow any kind of life. And I, I feel like, like that's a, that's a problem because you're taking out swaths of the industry that have tons of experience. Yeah. Yeah. And that, is so frustrating to me and I want to be part of the change on that that allows for people to excel who traditionally would have been pushed out a little bit and I, I feel very strongly about that and it's something that I, I think about constantly but again that industry and the way that was shifted and the way that worked made me the cook that I am and made me someone who says oh sure you need bread at the farmer's market I'll work 30 hour days no problem and I'm really grateful for that. And I don't know how you get that level out of someone without pushing them that hard. And I don't have the answer. I don't push people that hard because I don't think that's like an ethical thing to do. But I do worry that it makes people soft and doesn't... I think people often need a really strong push. I certainly did. And I don't know how you get that out of someone while not pushing them that hard. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think the shift is great. I want for there to be diversity in kitchens. I want for there to be women in kitchens. I don't want for it to only be supporting 20-year-old sadistic white dudes. But I also don't know how to get that level out of people. Because everywhere I've worked that has treated people really badly. And yeah, I, I, there, there's, there's something there. There's obviously a different way of going about it. And I'm trying to figure that out. Because like, I'm, I'm not a yelly person. I literally <laughs> never yell. It happens like so rarely, but I also have no problem firing people that don't do a good enough job. So like, I try to keep it really light and nice in here, but like, if you're not doing well, you don't get to stay. And I'm, I have a pretty hard line on that. And I think that helps make people push harder. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's hard. It's really, it's hard. I, I do think the shift is happening, but 
I don't have the answer. Yeah. I want I want the answer, but I don't have it. I, I don't think, yeah, I don't know that anybody has the answer yet. Do you think it could be tied in some way to the larger community and customers' willingness to pay more for food? And one, yes and one, no. Okay, I'll, I'll give you one little bit of background on that. One of the places that I've staged a lot is uh, Bouchon Bistro in Vegas, mm-hmm. so a Thomas Keller restaurant. Yeah. Now, it's expensive, and of course, it's in a big fancy hotel on the Strip, and it's got acres of space and a gorgeous kitchen and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But they do have the customer base that is willing to pay the prices. That they, and it's, yeah. I don't think it's overpriced for what it is at all. No. I, I think it's fairly priced for what it is. But it's a big check at the end of the, at the, end of the meal. Yeah. But at least that allows them, I think, to pay people a little better, to keep an eye on hours, mm-hmm. to provide a, a good physical workspace, all that kind of thing. So yeah. I, I've started to wonder recently whether it's a much bigger picture answer that requires all of us to pay a little bit more for real food. And I do think that it does. I think, yeah, I think education is huge for customers. I do think that people have gotten really used to the idea of food being cheap. But cheap food is made with cheap ingredients with cheap labor. And that's how that works. But, like, restaurants have a really small margin. It's a really, really small margin to stay afloat. And I do think that, like, I mean, like I said before, like, I I really believe that food should be accessible. Everyone should be able to buy good food. Food should, you know, they should subsidize local organic farmers so that everyone can get good local organic produce. I really believe that. Not just these huge agricultural monoliths, but but the small guys, because I think that that food has to become more accessible to people. But it's tricky. Like, I mean, we're nestled into a community that has a lot of poverty in it. Everything on our menu is under $18. It is really hard to keep that price point. We sell things that we know we're losing money on, and we sell other things at a higher price point to try to keep that going. But but it's tough. Everything is under. And I still get, I get emails from people saying, you know, I really like your space, but... I can't afford to eat here. I wish your prices were better. And I'm going, well, <laughs> we won't be here if our prices are yeah. better. Yeah. And I try to keep them really low because we're in a community, but, but it, you know, that, that margin has to come from somewhere. So like we have a bigger tip pool for the kitchen than most restaurants do. That really helps people tip on bread, not just on their food. And so that allows for our servers to get decent enough tips that we can keep good servers but it's hard it's really hard to figure out where that line is and i do think that is education based like people need to understand that their food costs more but people who do understand it but can't afford it then get left out of that equation and that's really problematic to me right right we're not going to solve it tonight. <laughs> I don't. We can do it. We can do it. Yeah, we can do it. We just got to think harder. Um, I want to get your thoughts on the coffee that you serve and the yeah. style of coffee. Mm-hmm. And here's, here's why. So I read Alexander Gill's article mm-hmm. uh, about you and about your restaurant, uh, which was extremely complimentary. It's very and, kind. And she said this about coffee. Wash that Cornetto down with a dark, chocolatey espresso. They switch up the roaster, roasters, sometimes Milano, sometimes Agro. But it is always real Italian coffee, not that sour, thin, hipster bean nonsense. <laughs> and I loved that turn of phrase because I've been to some uh, coffee shops where I've had pour-over coffees, and it is honestly like this Emperor's New Clothes experience, because everybody's raving about it, and I'm thinking, what am I missing? It doesn't taste like coffee. You joke so, about this all the time. Okay. All the time. <laughs> and Jordan and I always say, like, it's like, remember when breweries first started, and like like the microbreweries, and everyone was like, there are these things called hops. Hops, and you can taste them. We're so hoppy. You're like, this is not a balanced beer. This isn't a nice beer to drink. There is not, this is not made by a skilled brewer. This is just like as many hops as, as we can, can get into it. In yeah. And it doesn't taste good. And that's the sour coffee to me. There are these like medium light roasts and they're sour. <laughs> and it's not nice to drink. Sure, if you drink. 12 cups of coffee a day, maybe you can taste certain nuances that you couldn't if you took most of them darker. But don't drink 12 <laughs> don't cups drink of coffee a day. That's bad for you. Drink less and have it be better coffee. Yes. It's crazy yeah. to me. So we, Agro now makes exclusively our coffee. We love them. And they make a dark roast just for us. And it is, it's dark. It's chocolatey. It is, you taste the like really deep, nutty, buckwheaty flavors 
And I love it. I love it so much. I hate hipster coffee. I hate hipster coffee. (laughs) We are united on that. Fair enough. Now, one of the goals of this show is to extract stories from restaurants, from people in the industry. Because when I was cooking... I found that we were laughing and having fun even over the course of a 16-hour day. Mm. And I always remember thinking, like, as a guest, you're missing so much of the experience. There's so much <laughs> going on here throughout the prep day, and there's so much fun happening. It's true. So do you have a story, a restaurant story, that people from the outside just, you know, wouldn't see because they're not working in the industry? <laughs> I mean, yeah, like a million of them. Okay. But they, they, they just, like, they sort of just happen over time. There is a real sense of camaraderie in restaurants, and I do think that that is overlooked a lot. Restaurants are not like normal workplaces because you work really long hours together, and you work, and you're, like, you're, just, you're in the weeds together. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's it is juicy out there <laughs> yes. on a hard shift. Yes. And there is like a really, really strong sense of camaraderie mm. that happens. That's <laughs> so wonderful in good restaurants. Bad restaurants don't have that. Yeah. But I'm trying to think of something like funny. That's just on the fly. Well, and I don't know that I'm the, not a very the funny term, person. The term that, that sticks with me that I learned in the restaurant world was not in the weeds, but in the shit. Yeah, and yeah, <laughs> and I thought, I've taken that back into the law world, or I keep meaning to try to try to get that to stick in that world too, because there are days when you're in the shit there too. Oh yeah, there's right? not an industry where you're working hard that you're not sometimes just totally in the juice. But yeah, but there's something kind of specific I think about restaurants, like the just the intensity of the hustle is so real. Opening a restaurant is the most insane thing you could do. Like I remember just like having like a full meltdown like four months in. I was working. I worked way too much when we opened. I didn't have a night baker. I was here all day, every day. I, had, I was so broke. We were way over budget. We were so broke that I was going to Costco to buy our, our white flour because it was cheaper than getting it in through a supplier. And so, like, I would be at Costco moving, like, you know, five to 700 pounds of flour, flour every out single the- day into my little <laughs> Japanese mini truck that you're not supposed to put more than 400 pounds worth of stuff in the back of. Like, it was a whole thing. I was working way too much, like 120, 140 hours a week. And it, I mean, it was so intense. And I remember just having this like full meltdown, just like sobbing on the floor and calling a chef friend, being like, I don't like, I don't know that I can keep doing this. I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm literally like I'm dying. Like I was having heart palpitations. Like I was just like, like I, my body was shutting down because I was working too much. And he was just like, yeah, but nobody else can do this. And that's why we do it. I was like, I think that's a bad reason. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure I feel inspired by that, but (laughs) but it's true. Normally, like most people can't do this. I do believe that there is something, and I don't think it's a good thing that we do. Like it's pathological. But I don't know. I can't imagine doing anything else. But it's psychotic. It's absolutely like I used to sleep here all the time. But then, so the ugly dumpling that's a block away from here, two blocks away from here, and we sometimes share farm orders if one of us doesn't meet a minimum. So I had ordered. He asked for me to order two pounds of pea shoots. I ordered 20 pounds of pea shoots. So he came back with 18 pounds of pea shoots. He's like, what are you, what are you doing here? And I just like, basically I was on the verge of tears. He was just like, are you okay? And I was like, no. No, I'm not. He's like, do you want me to bring you some soup? And I was like, yes. Oh. And he came at two in the morning after his shift. And not just like he didn't bring me a to-go container of soup. He brought a little thing of soup, poured it in the pot to warm it up. He brought the handmade noodles because he makes soba and udon from scratch. He's the only person in Western Canada that I know of that does it. He's extraordinary. Solid plug. All I do is hype up Darren. I'm obsessed with food. And like like a little thing of pickles and all the things. And he like poured us both a fernet. And we sat down at two in the morning and had this lovely conversation. And I ate this beautiful bowl of soup. And it was just like, like it to this day, like was one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for me. I just so needed someone to look after me. But like that's what people in our industry do. Do yeah. It's like yeah. like the camaraderie is so real, and everyone looks after each other, and it's really special and wonderful and just nicer than anyone imagines. That is so good. Thank you. That's a perfect there story. Go, I, a, I did yes, it. I did it. You did it. Absolutely, you did it. That's a wonderful story, and uh, and I can't think a better note to end it on except we should let people everybody knows where to find you but let's make sure they know how best to follow along with you with livia all of that stuff. so we're 1399 commercial drive you can follow us along at at livia suites at on instagram it's really the only social one i use a lot of <laughs> but i think i'm on twitter and i think <laughs> our instagram goes to our facebook so you can there you go there follow too. there too yeah. 
Perfect. Yeah. Well, Claire, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this talk. Oh, this has been so much fun. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so happy that Claire was my first guest on the new season of Chef Timoni. Thanks, Claire, for our great talk. I can't wait to see you and to see Livia again soon, and, of course, to have that mushroom, egg, and polenta dish. Thank you for being here, too. It means a whole lot to me. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a food-loving friend about Chef Timoni, and if you like, please leave a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'd really appreciate it. As always, I love to hear from you, so if you've got a question or a comment for the show, or perhaps a guest suggestion, please just get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter under at Cheftimony, and on LinkedIn, you can find me under my name, under Graham McLennan. Or you can always just send an email to graham at cheftimony.com. Okay, that is all for this week for the season opening episode of season four. I will see you two Fridays from now, that's February 26th, right here on Chef Demoni. <laughs>